Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Dog sledding is one of those things that is, despite, you know, doing it my whole life, hard to find the words to describe what it really feels like, you know? In those moments before you take off, the dogs are jumping and screaming and like just so excited to run. And it's a really palpable energy too, you know? They get so excited and then you get so excited that all of a sudden you're untied, you know? And you're just going and you're just sliding across the snow and the ice. And when you get out of earshot from everybody, it's so quiet and peaceful and beautiful. You feel so connected with the dogs and it's just a really wonderful experience. This is Reagan. I'm Reagan Burden. I'm from Port Hope Simpson, Labrador, living in Happy Valley Goose Bay, and I'm a reporter here with CBC. And who are these squeaky babies? <laughs> Those squeaky babies are three very tiny, very fluffy, adorable husky puppies that are living at my parents' home in Port Hope Simpson, Labrador right now. My dad has a dog team. He has 10 adult dogs, and this is three dogs from his most recent litter. There were six puppies. Three of them have moved on to other homes, and uh, these three he is keeping for his team. So tiny husky puppies at my parents' house is actually kind of a normal thing. When Reagan moved away to St. John's, Newfoundland for university, following in her father's and about 10 sled dogs' footsteps seemed, well... Profoundly impractical. But now that she's moved to Happy Valley Goose Bay, I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to run my own dog sledding team. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Dog Project. Where Reagan's from in Labrador, dog sledding is mostly a hobby these days. It's something that people do because they love it. But for Reagan, it is also a lot more than that. It's a passion, and it's a passion that I really understand. Having driven a dog sled countless times growing up, being with my dad around the dogs, and it's more than just my family tradition. For me, it's a cultural practice that has been used in Inuit communities for thousands of years. My dad's side of the family, we have Inuit ancestry. I'm part of the Nunatuavut Community Council. And, you know, my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather all had dog sled teams. And because, you know, this part of Labrador, it was colonized. So on my mom's side of the family, we're settlers. But her father and his father and his father and his father's father all had dog teams as well. So it was such an integral part of those communities here. And I really don't know what the future of that is going to look like. So it's trying to figure out if I can keep that alive, too. So Reagan is heading home to spend two days with her dad and his dogs to find out 
what it would really take. There's so much I don't know about keeping and caring for a team that I really want to learn to know if this is actually something that I'm capable of doing, uh, if it's something that I really do want to actually do. Reagan will take it from here. As much as I wish they could stay tiny puppies forever, that isn't how it works. They were just a week old the first time I held them, and they've done a lot of growing since then. And the more they grow, the more chaotic it gets to have them inside. So we've taken them back outside to let them run around in the snow in the yard. It must be uh, getting up towards three months now, I'd say. Yeah, it must be close to three months now. This is my dad, Dennis. Uh, at six, I got rid of three. I had no trouble getting rid of them all. Everybody wants husky puppies, but I kept them three for the team now. How do you decide which ones to keep? Well, I got three females already, so all the females got to go. That's a given. I got too many females. Two is enough, you know. Now that they're a bit older, what kind of dogs do you think they're going to be? They're going to be big dogs. They're going to be active dogs, too. Looks like they're going to be kind of friendly dogs, too, the way they're playing around with their father there. I think they're going to be very good. They come from a good breed of dogs. These pups were bred by my dad's dogs, Rick and Kinapak. They are two of the friendliest dogs that I've ever met. It's the second litter that they've had together, and their pups are always the sweetest, too. Rick is such a great mom to the pups. She loves taking care of them, is always so proud of her litters, and always saves some of her own food for them. The dad, Pock, as we call him for short, loves to play with his pups when they're at the age they are now. It's so sweet to see him lying on his back in the snow, letting his puppies crawl all over him. If the mother and father is good dogs now, that don't always work all the same. But, but that's it, just finding a good breed and then sticking with it, with, with it, you know? Like you find a good dog, you cross him up with a, with a better dog. Uh, I'm watching him run here now. <laughs> Stay off the road. Yeah, a breed got most to do with it. It wasn't until university that I realized that getting to spend so much time with puppies, spending so much time with so many dogs, isn't a normal thing. When you're growing up, you don't question it. So my favorite dog was always Dancer, though I did really like Donatello as well when I went through my Ninja Turtles phase. They had some fancy names. Some Jeez. Oh, boy. Raphael. Michelangelo. Yeah. Yeah, I had them all. But who was your favorite dog you ever had? Man, that's a hard one. I'd say Dancer. She wasn't a really fast dog, but she had a lot of endurance, and she was a great lead dog. And where we had her in the house, too, you know. Did I ever tell you the story about that, where I had Dancer in the house? Ooh, I don't think so. <laughs> You're involved. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, one day I went down over the stairs, and Dancer was taking a leak on the floor. And when I looked, there was this little girl oh, no. with her pants all down, taking a leak with her alongside the dog. I said, Reagan, what are you doing? 
That's a memory, yeah. Come here. <laughs> Get off the road. You know, I have a lot of memories of being with you with the dogs and with the pups. Are there any, besides, of course, that one, that stick out to you? Uh, there's, there's too many. Too many to mention, really. I remember... I guess you, I think it was your first dog sled ride. I was after the side watching Alistair Sampson was on with you. He was on the comedy and you got on with him. And uh, I'll always remember that. I see the picture once in a while come up there. and I, 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 uh, That was a good memory. I don't remember that first dog sled ride. I have so many memories of doing it. It's hard to know which is the first. I remember my dad taking me and my friends out for rides when we were little. One of those memories is of my dad harnessing up the puppies and me and my best friend getting on the Comatic. That's the flat sled that the dogs drag along. The puppies must have been six months old or so, and they took us on a short little 500-meter run across the bay. One of the puppies got tired so fast that he had to sit on the sled with us for most of the ride. If keeping a dog sled team was only going for rides and playing with puppies, the decision of whether or not to have one would be pretty easy. But there's a lot of work to caring for a team, as my dad makes abundantly clear. He tells me what we're going to get up to over the next two days. We'll uh, spend some time around the dogs. We'll drive them. I'll teach you how to, well, not teach you. I'll get you to help me feed them and... Put you to work shoveling the poop away, and <laughs> uh, we'll keep you occupied. We're over here on the on the Milko Point, they call it. There used to be. An old sawmill here years and years and years ago. Mill Cove is just near the outskirts of town. When Port Hope Simpson was founded, it was a logging community. And this cove is where the logging companies set up their sawmills. There are still some fallen down buildings here. And in amongst the alders and trees, you can see old trucks and equipment that were once used here. There was a time when people used to keep their dog teams by their homes and on their own properties. But as you may have heard, huskies are not exactly quiet. And I had dogs around my door for a little while, but, uh, you know, town folks didn't like the dogs around making a lot of noise and stuff like that. So the council told me this was a good place to bring them over here. So I've been here since uh, 93, I believe, I, I moved over here with them. So out on the very point at Mill Cove is where my father keeps his dogs. It might be my favorite place in the whole world. Most of my memories with him are here in his dog shack. This place that we're in right now, I've always called the dog shack. When I was little, I always thought it was much bigger <laughs> than what it is. Every time I come over, I think it feels smaller and smaller. I think it's 10 by 12 or something, a little shack, that's all. And I got a stove in here and keeps me harnesses. And uh, my dog food is just off to the side there in containers. And it's just a dog shack, that's all, yeah. And when I look around, I see a lot of dogs' names and dates written on the walls. Tell me about those. Yeah, it's just uh, memories of dogs I had and people that had been here and signed the wall. And 
There's a few pictures of uh, just uh, memories, that's all. Tell me about this one here, the older guy in the green jacket with the puppies in his arms. Who's that? That's Eric Rumbold there. He was one of the guys that uh, that brought the dogs back. We, you know, the dogs disappeared for a long, long time here when the screws came around. So so he was one of the first ones. Now, he and Graham Russell uh, decided to get a team each, and, uh, and that's what started all this again. There was a time when dog sleds were used for transportation across the north in Canada. Where I grew up, southern Labrador, they used to bring nurses to and from each community. They delivered mail, they were used for hunting, for hauling water and firewood back to your home. There were also occasional dog sled races, but the dogs were kept for practical reasons more than anything else. Our family has a long tradition of running dogs. On my father's side of the family, we have Inuit ancestry, and running teams goes back at least four generations. We aren't sure about before that, but as far as we know, they ran teams right until my grandfather. When snowmobiles came around, things changed. My grandfather stopped running teams before my dad was born. He gave up shortly after the screws come along. That was when did the screws come around? Well, it must have been around the 1950s, something like that, I'd say. Yeah, when the screws come along, everybody just gave up on them, you know. It was a lot simpler, for sure. Not so much work. But they uh, wouldn't because they lost their love for them, you know, I mean. <laughs> and because people still love the dogs, in the 80s, the dog team started coming back in our area, thanks to people like Graeme Russell and Eric Rumbold. But it was just for fun to be able to race them, to get people out together to see the teams. Now, some of the communities in Southern Labrador have races every year. Races are usually anywhere between 14 to 20 miles. People gather at the starting lines and the dogs are jumping and barking, waiting for the mushers, that's the dog sled drivers, to get on the comatic so the race can begin. Everybody loves the races. It's a huge crowd that comes together. It's one of the things that brings people out in our communities the most these days. There used to be, once upon a time, like winter sports days and people would have snowshoe races on the ice and those things don't really happen anymore, but the dog sled races still do. And when they come in over the finish line, men pick up the comatics with the mushers still on them and lift them up over their head. It's something that everybody looks forward to when it happens. My dad remembers the first time he saw a dog team. It was at a race in Port Hope Simpson. He was around 18 years old, and it was just after they'd brought the dogs back. What did you think the first time you saw them? I got to have one of them. Yeah, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, I think. Just a man and his dogs. To be able to go travel and not depend on anybody or anything else. Pop used to have a team. You know, what What did he tell you about his team? He used to talk a lot about going hunting and stuff. He, I don't know if he was in very many races or not, but he talked more about traveling like it and going in the country hunting and and a scattered trip to Charlottetown and transporting people. I know he's always telling me a story about his great team he had. And, and he, he had a couple of 
a couple of elders on. He was bringing out to Rex and Scoven how fast he'd done it and and how good the dogs were. When you got started, who who taught you about what to do, how to care for them, how to run them, everything that needed to be done? My buddy Brian Kippenhook had dogs there, and I started driving these dogs off and on, and and I went from there. Then, look, I learned from me how to uh, feed them and cook for them and stuff. And of course, my father was always around. He was always there with me, especially in the early days. Well, he used to just tell me, you know, things to do. Be a little harder on them. He always told me that you're not hard enough on them. You got to be harder on them. You can't let a dog run you over. You got to make the dog listen. Being consistent. He, he told me I always had to be consistent. Never let the dog off with anything. Not once. If you train the dog to go out there and stay out there in his place and not to come back, well, that's what he got to do. If you let that dog do it once, that's it. You're, you're in trouble. The dog will know that, that he can run you then. Tell me about what you're cooking for the dogs. Uh, herring. Uh, I'll put the water in, I'll boil the water, and then I chop the herring up a bit small and edge the herring to it. And as soon as it comes to a boil, then I'll add uh, some cornmeal to it to thicken it up, you know. And then I'll, uh, I'll just uh, hoist that up over the stove, lift it off the stove a little bit and go on and do things I got to do. And then in the evening, then I'll come back, you know, and it'll still be nice and warm and it'll be ticking right up then like almost like a pudding, you know. He likes it like that. Then I adds a bit of uh, dry dark food to it. Oh, yeah, it's seal. I forgot the seal. That's the mainstay for it, the seal, especially the fat. The fat is awful good for them, you know, especially in cold water. It takes hours from start to finish to cook for the dogs. It's a lot of work, and I've often questioned why he does it. Why not just give them dog food and water? But there are solid reasons behind it. During the winter, you can't just give dogs a bowl of water. It will freeze over. And the seal fat and oil in the herring gives them the nutrients they need to stay outside in the cold. It also helps keep the cost down. Decent kibble for 10 full-grown sled dogs is not cheap. How often do you have to come over and, and cook for them here? I try to do it every day. Now, you know, I mean, some days you, you can't do it, but... But every day when I'm driving them, I try to cook a meal for them, and... I can do it pretty fast, and of course there's other things to do, like, you know, if you go sh- shovel away yesterday's food, and <laughs> stuff like that, you know. You need something to stir it, you got to stir it all the time, especially after you put it in a cornmeal, you can't leave it alone, you know, for a very long time, it'll burn on it. But that should be all right there now. What was the hardest part when you first got started? For me, when I started my own team, the hardest part was I just after getting off of another team that I was driving along to a friend, and he had a really good leader and he had a really good team to straighten out. And I just kind of assumed that, well, yeah, I'll just get my own team and I'll jump over them and go on. But uh, it wasn't that way. <laughs> it was, it was hard. Oh. <laughs> It was really hard to, to take a, a full team, you know, and try to get something to go ahead. Is, is uh, 
you know, you got a pretty good. If you got say two or three dogs that that you can put out and they'll stay out there in their place and they'll jump up and down and bark to go, then it's pretty easy to take another team, another dog, and put in with that team because the first dog will learn from the from the older ones then. And, and that's pretty simple then. But when you got to start with the no leader, like I was down to that again last year. I never had no leader. I never had any dogs that been drove hardly. So I had to, to start from scratch and Jesus hard. But you know, after a time, patience is the thing. You know, you've got to have a lot of patience and, and you can get really, really angry and and you know, especially when you're tired and stuff like that, trying to make them listen, and and you can get really, really angry, and it's it's better to walk away for a day and come back and try tomorrow, because you can confuse a dog real bad, you know. My dad has some young dogs now that haven't been hooked up to the Comatic yet. He says they look pretty sharp, and that one of them might even be able to make a lead dog. I don't know how he can tell already when the dogs haven't been harnessed yet. They just run alongside the snowmobile. But after 30 years, Dad says he knows what to look for. One will always go ahead. You'll always get one that will always go ahead. And if anything else tries to pass, you'll end up fighting on them, probably driving them back. And you think to yourself, you know, well, boy, that's, that fella shouldn't be able to make a lead dog there, right? You like to see confidence in a dog. You know, you got to look for confidence. Confidence is, is, is the main thing in making a lead dog. When the cornmeal is thoroughly mixed in with the food, the boiler can sit on the stove unattended for a little while. Now we're going to (laughs) go clean up yesterday's food? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what became of yesterday's food after it's passed through the dog's digestive tracts? There is poop absolutely everywhere. The dogs are more organized than that. They don't go where they sleep or close to their little houses. They'll walk a little way away and poop there. There aren't huge mounds to clean up, but when you're dealing with 10 huskies, it adds up to a lot of shoveling. to do this every single day. Oh yeah, every day. Some days you miss a day, you know, but not too bad. When it's frosty, it's not too bad because, you know, it freezes, eh? But you get them all days and he lets it go on the ground and drags it all over the place and it's really gross. It sounds really gross. I gotta get some, I gotta get some work done over around anyway to some terrible drift banks. I had to move around a couple. But I'll get that done tomorrow. Every time there's a snowstorm or a blizzard, he's got to come over here and dig out the wooden houses he's built for the dogs. They only really use them when it's raining. They love to sleep in the snow. Last snowstorm, he got someone with a plow to come over and help him push the snow and the drift banks around. There's a lot of work to it, and it never stops, no matter what the weather is. I'm not much help when it comes to shoveling giant mounds of snow. But I can help when it comes to cleaning up around the dogs. Get off of me. Get off. Okay. 
<laughs> oh, gee. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. That's one dog. Uh, this is much more tiring than it looks, Dad. Doesn't smell great, Dad. Does not smell great. Oh, smells pretty good now, froze. Yeah, I guess this is a, I guess this is a, a whole different beast in the summertime, hey? <laughs> yeah. Get off me! They're very affectionate. <laughs> so, sometimes they'll cock up their leg on you if, if you're not watching. <laughs> Did he really just pee on me? Yeah. It takes me twice as long to do the work my father does here every day. And I watched every single step that he takes when cooking for them. And I could tell how much I was slowing him down with all my questions. But even after asking all those questions and watching him so intensely, if I went back tomorrow, I'm not even sure I'd know where to start. I'd get there, you know. He's got 30 years on me after all. I don't expect to start and have the skills and knowledge that he does, but it's going to take some time. AC here. Coming up, Reagan heads out for day two of dog sled boot camp and to find out more about the history of dog sledding. Sit tight. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. You... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday was spent doing chores, but today it's time for one of my favorite things in the entire world, taking the dogs for a ride. Something I've been doing for as long as I can remember. But this time, I'll be getting my dad to show me the ropes. Or the traces, to be more precise. The ropes that bind the dogs to the sled. What do you have there? Oh, that's my traces. There, that's... Uh... Old bank line, they used to call it. Trial line. It's really strong stuff. It's small, but really strong. And there, uh, I have my first dog, two fed him out on a trace, and then uh, each one is a fed him apart after that. So how, you know, explain to me how the traces and the harnesses and all this comes together to, to get the dogs pulling the sled. Well, like I said, I got the traces there. They're one fathom apart. A fathom is about six feet. First dog, two fathom out. And he ties into the bridle in a comatic there. It's just a rope we put through the end of them. I got always spliced in both ends of the traces. And in my harnesses, I got uh, snaps on them, little brass snaps that 
that snaps into the to the end of the trace there. So the harnesses go on the dog. There's a snap that hooks them into the trace, which then all ties together to the sled. To the comet again. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. All excited? Yeah. <laughs> How do you pick which dog goes where? Well, after a while, you figure out, you know, which dog is best. The smartest dog in front, usually. Well, he likes the front to be a bit fast, too, but if he's stupid, there's not much good happening out there. <laughs> the strongest, stupidest dog behind, everybody says. Okay, you're putting the harness on. Explain to me what you're doing. Well, I just slides it over his head there. And then uh, try to get a leg out through here. He's pretty, pretty excited, of course. Hey, come on, boy. Keep it down. Attaboy. That's one. Now, for the second leader. This fellow likes to chew off traces. I got to watch you on it, honey. He gets out on line, he gets excited, and he chews off the traces, but I... I got a different piece of rope put in now, hoping that, hoping that that'll work. Relax, relax. Despite that seeing my father harness up the dogs my entire life, I've never really paid attention to how he actually does it. So, okay, this? The other way, the other way, that part down, yeah. That goes down his chest, this piece, so. Okay. Just, so. So turn him around. Yeah. Down over it. Down, down over his head like this? Yeah, slide okay. over his head and then twist it around. Okay. All right. Okay. okay, there you go. The harness looks similar to a regular dog harness, the kind people sometimes use to walk their dogs. But it's more heavy duty and has more straps and more opportunities for me to put it on wrong. No, 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 calm down. Stop there moving. is full body wiggling, tail wagging, and jumping going on. They are just so excited. All right, like that? Yeah. Okay. Now, there we go. All right. Um, okay, okay, stop, 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 stop. Calm down, calm down. Good boy. Come here. Up, 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 up. And then, oh, thank you for the kisses. The husky called Hawk gives me a full face wash with his tongue. Yeah, okay, come on. Work with me, buddy. Come on. Put your freaking leg through. Uh, like that? I think. Okay. Alrighty, that's it. Yeah? Are you sure? Like that? I think it's inside out by. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. After all that, watching my dad and having him talk me through each step, I've put the harness on inside out. How do we fix that? You gotta take me off again. What? You gotta take me off again. Take it off again, yeah. You can just take the two legs out and twist the whole piece around. <laughs> Despite what it may sound like, no dogs were harmed in the making of this documentary. The barking and whining and howling that you hear, that's because they just can't wait to run. The second they see my dad with the harnesses, they start. And they don't stop until they're pulling the comatic. Under my dad's patient guidance, I managed to harness two dogs. Boy, all right. All right, calm There you down. go. Nip them with your legs a bit. So, in between my legs. Perfect. There he is. Like that. Okay. 
Okay. Now, now just drop that one right over your leg. Yeah, come here, buddy. Come on, good boy. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, okay, I did it. Same okay. Thing on this side now. Okay. Good boy. Come on, give me your leg. Give me your leg. Come on. Perfect. Good boy. Good boy. Okay. Good boy. You I did it. You. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> you make that look pretty easy, Dad. Well, yeah, like I said, 30 years at it. It took me 20 minutes to do it. Much too long to expect the dogs to wait. My dad harnesses two in about five minutes. When you're running dogs, is from the time you start putting them in until you get on the go, the faster you can do that, the better. I don't give them time to, uh, to get bored and, and start uh, messing around, you know. So get them out fast as you can and get gone. So that's what I find best. They're excited. Oh yeah, they know they're gonna. They know they're gonna get a little run now. The dogs can barely wait to go, but there are still a few more steps to learn. First, my dad anchors the comatic or the sled to the snowmobile. This is because as soon as the dogs are attached to the comatic, they'll want to take off. The snowmobile stops them. Next, he ties the traces into the bridle. That's a piece of rope that's attached to the nose of the comatic. Then he snaps the dog's harnesses into the traces. They run out as far as the trace will let them and jump and bark until it's time to run. Relax, relax, relax. Stand back a little bit there now. My dad detaches the comatic from the snowmobile. Get ready, get ready. What? Okay. I'm on. I'm on, I'm on. I got my bits. I... And we are off. Yo, yo. I got him. I got my bits. I got my bits. It's really hard to explain that peaceful feeling you get when you're running the dogs. All you can hear are the dogs panting, their paws digging in, the sled moving along on the ice and snow. In that moment, everything else disappears. It feels like you and the dogs are the only thing in the world. My dad is on the snowmobile far ahead of me while the dogs run along on the track it's created. This is the part I know how to do holding on to the rope tied to the top of the sled so I don't fall off, calling out to the dogs and coaxing them to run faster, digging my heels into the snow to get them to slow down, sitting on the comatic, taking it all in, enjoying the peace of it all. So, how'd I do? Good. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I was listening to you. You got a nice voice. You found a... You must have heard that before, did you? I heard what? That uh, yell you had. What yell? Hey! Hey! <laughs> yeah, once or twice. <laughs> I heard that once or twice from you, I think. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it was a good day. I enjoyed it. I've been watching my father do this, run a dog team, all my life. I know that the history of running dog teams in Southern Labrador has been going on for hundreds of years, and that Inuit have been doing it for thousands of years. 
I know about my family's history and how it feels important that I continue that history and tradition, but there is a lot about the history of dog sledding in Southern Labrador that I don't know. In terms of recorded history, there isn't too much, but the oral history and tradition were still strong 10 years ago. That's when Greg Mitchell, a senior researcher with the Nunatuavik Community Council, was asking questions about this. And I was told, you know, it was, I was almost laughed at, right? It was, so, it was such an intrinsic part of their living and their livelihood. Um, that, and they were really curious as to why anybody would even want to know about it. <laughs> I asked Greg about the settlers in my family and how they would have learned about dog sledding. It turns out we're very distant cousins. And as I sort of expected, those who came to Southern Labrador never would have survived without Inuit and the technologies we had. Single men working for traders became involved in and married into Inuit families and kinship networks in Labrador. These single men, and remember now, uh, these are not from groups that come and settle on the land. Uh, these are single men who basically run away from the trading posts and marry Inuit women. And we have a lot of recorded uh, history of that. I mean, you know very well uh, how tough it can be in the wintertime. And uh, unless you have the technologies and the knowledge of the land and the sea and the ice, you, you can't survive without that. There is a lot of oral history. But there's also a lack of academic research and literature in Southern Labrador. If you go looking for it, you got a job to find it. But if you dig into the oral history of, uh, you know, of people's knowledge about dogs, there's, there's a gap there to, to basically understand what's out there in terms of, of oral history. And as well, you know, there is a serious gap in archaeological research as well. There's a whole stretch of coastline, a really, really important stretch of coastline that has yet to be, yet to be even, to even surface, right? And amongst that, I am absolutely certain that you're going to find, um, you know, uh, traces, traces is, is a good word. But yeah, you're, you're going to see, uh, once we get a real good archaeological basis here now, um, I think that you're going to find a lot of evidence of, um, of, of traditional uh, traditional dog sledding. You have to find it. I mean, it's been passed on from generation to generation to generation. While there is a lack of research in this regard in southern Labrador, in other parts of the Arctic, they found traces of dogs pulling sleds going back 9,000 years. My name is Robert Losey. I'm a professor of archaeology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And my research really focuses on humans' relationships with animals in the past. Uh, and I spent most of my, you know, most of the last 10 years working on people's relationships with dogs, how people fed dogs, how they cared for their dogs, where dogs were domesticated. And recently, we've been really digging into the issue of uh, looking at the long-term history of dog sledding in the Arctic. Um, I've been doing most of my research in Siberia, and Siberia has... Uh, archaeological evidence of people loving and living with dogs that goes back, um, you know, at least 10,000 years. Speaking with Professor Losey, I learned just how far back the dog sledding goes. We first start to see dogs in the Arctic very early on. So about 11,000 years ago, we see the first dogs in the Arctic, and they show up in the Arctic of northern Europe 
kind of near St. Petersburg uh, in Russia. And shortly thereafter, we see dogs in the Arctic associated with sleds. Um, so this, this uh, evidence is from a place called Jokov Island, which is in the Siberian Arctic. And it's a, it dates to about 9,000 years ago. So you see lots of dogs there, uh, really lightly built small sleds. And I'm guessing those were used by people and dogs together so that you'd have one or two dogs helping a person pull a sled. Um, so that, that is some form of dog sledding uh, in the Arctic quite early on. And then by two or 3,000 years ago, you see archaeological evidence for dog sledding sort of like um, was done by the Inuit, you know, in the last 100 years. So lots of dogs, large body dogs, uh, various forms of sleds. You know, you see those that go back at least 2,000 years ago in northern Alaska. So um, dog sledding is really old. I mean, thousands of years old, depending upon where you are in the world. I would say it's in some ways, very difficult to really definitively prove that dogs are pulling sleds in the past because most of the, you know, the equipment that's used in dog sledding is perishable. The equipment he's talking about is made from wood and hide, things that decay quite quickly. There have been instances of wooden sleds being preserved in the permafrost in northern Alaska and parts of Siberia, but there's also genetic evidence. We see dogs you know, that are really well adapted to living in the Arctic, living in really cold conditions eight or 9,000 years ago. So there's really nothing in the archaeological record that prevents us from saying that dog sledding isn't really, really old. I mean, maybe even eight or 9,000 years old. Uh, and then it probably eventually evolved into the, the types of practices that were done by Inuit historically. I would guess that form of dog sledding two or 3,000 years old. On the genetic side of things, um, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of normal standard archaeologist. I work with geneticists to figure that stuff out. So they, they take very small pieces of bone or a tooth root and then extract the DNA from that and then compare it to modern dogs, modern wolves, but also ancient dogs and wolves and then try to look at similarities and differences to trace out relationships. And then they pair all of this with how old the specimens are to try to look at you know, movements of dogs and people and relationships between dogs and wolves. Uh, the other way that people um, have been trying to figure this out is to look at the, the skeletons of dogs themselves. So uh, as you know, and as you know far better than I do, um, Sled dogs are athletes, right? They, they are hardworking, athletic, strong animals. And that um, strength and conditioning and, and their habitual activity of pulling sleds all the time, it makes their muscles stronger, but that also makes their bones stronger. We have this work kind of ongoing, trying to compare, you know, the strength of, of dog bones from the past with um, modern dogs that we know that pulled sleds, pet dogs, modern wolves and so on. That sort of research helps us try to understand this long-term history. And the other other thing that I think people are usually quite interested in is, you know, one of the key things with with dog sledding, and, and again, I'm sure you know this very well, is if you're going to maintain a team of dogs, you have to feed them, 
right? And that's a it's a huge uh, effort to do so because you have a lot of lot of dogs that need to eat a lot of good quality food in order to perform their best. You know, it's it's looking at the history of dog sledding is about stitching together all these forms of evidence: the the gear, the dogs' bodies, their genetics, how they were being fed, to try to to paint a complicated picture of how that how that relationship with dogs uh, has evolved through time. And through that evidence, painting that complicated picture, researchers have been able to pinpoint the beginning of the relationship between not only Inuit and dogs, but the other indigenous peoples in the Americas. So the the earliest dogs in the Canadian Arctic are about four or 5,000 years old. Dogs are not very abundant in most of the Canadian Arctic until one or two thousand years ago when when the the close you know when Inuit ancestors moved into the Arctic uh, as you move into Alaska dogs are even earlier um, the earliest one was just identified a few years ago 10,000 years old in southeast Alaska you know and then across the the Bering Strait into Chukotka about 9,000 years old so with Inuit as long as Inuit have been in the Arctic they've been with dogs um, that is very clear and, you know, their Inuit's earlier ancestors that were in the Arctic had dogs too. So, and in fact, really, everyone seems to be suggesting now that the first people that came into the Americas over 15,000 years ago also came with dogs. So the, the entire history of indigenous people in the Americas was shared with dogs, which I think is very, very interesting. While the decision about whether or not I should have my own dog team is so interconnected to my family and my family's history, it's something that has been practiced in my culture and across the Arctic for literally thousands of years. I can't speak to how the tradition is holding up in other parts of the world, but keeping it alive here, in my home, in my community, is so important to me. It's a lot to think about. What do you need to start? Well, you need harnesses, you need to make traces, you need to make comatics, you, you need to build a shack over there, you need uh, boilers, you need dog food, you, you know, you need houses for the dogs. I realize that keeping a dog team isn't just about how much time it would take. A lot of the stuff my dad is listing off, he's had for years, and he knows how to make it himself. But me... Starting off, I wouldn't know any of this stuff, and it wouldn't be cheap. Oh, boy, it costs you a lot of money to get started. Say you'd want 10 dogs, I suppose, to start off. You might be able to get away with five starting. So you got five dogs, harnesses, I suppose, is running around $50 each now, and then you need collars. They're probably $10 each, and you want extras of that. Then your trace is going to cost a bit of money, and if you don't know how to build a comatic, you'll have to get someone to build one them. And Little does he know, he would be the one building it for me. Yeah, you probably want $3,000 or something just to get started off, probably more than that, you know, with a shack. And it's more than that initial investment. You've got to replace supplies as they wear down, buy food for the dogs, spend money on gas when you go hunting seals for them. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if I spend seven or $8,000 a year on them. Why do you keep doing it after all this time? You know, it costs so much money. It takes up so much time. Why do you still do this? I question that sometimes. 
I don't know. I think it's the freedom that comes with it, you know. I've made a couple of trips, three or four trips up to Regulate and McCovic, and I made one trip to Nain, which was, like, unreal. And I plans on going to the North Coast again. And, you know, that's what the, that's the kind of stuff, the, the, the going around the race and, and meeting people and a few drinks in the sheds after and singing songs and uh, and, and being with uh, friends and stuff. And, and then, you know, if the dice goes like, uh, I wouldn't have that anymore, you know why? I probably would never go to Charlottetown. My screw would probably sit by the door and wears every day. Now I'm on snowmobile to go over to the dogs and to, you know, it gets me outdoors. It it uh, it keeps me alive. It keeps me healthy and and it makes me really happy too. You know, I always have a good day when I'm on dogs. How do you feel when you're on the dogs? Pretty much free, you know. I've been into some political stuff in that the last few years and that, but. But when I go and harness the dogs, that all leaves me behind, and and I don't think about anything. Only my dogs, chirping them up, whistling to them, talking to them. Sometimes I've been on to sing to them, and, and nothing else crosses my mind on, until I'm back in the house. And when I do get back in the house, like I, I'm content, and I can, I can sleep at night where I spent all day out there. People don't need dogs anymore like they used to. What do you think is going to happen 20 years from now? Uh, around here, I, I, I can't see it lasting very much longer. I don't see any young people. And I think when we go, so the, that'll be it for the dogs. I don't know, another 10 years or something. We might be able to hang on to them for another 10 years. But but the, I think that'll be, it'll, it'll soon be all, be all over uh, this way of life. What do you think about me starting a team? <laughs> oh, my. Uh, 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 that would make me be awful happy, but I must remind you, it is a lot of work, my love. Do you think I could do it? Oh, yes, definitely, yeah. Should I? There's only one person can answer that question for you. Would you be disappointed if I didn't? No. No, I wouldn't. It's kind of hard to imagine dogs not being in our family, and not just, you know, our immediate family, but the extended family, too. You know, I have so many memories of all of us cousins with the dogs, and now our cousins' kids love the dogs. Isn't it strange to think that that might not be there anymore? Yeah, that's a, that's a very sad tat. Especially when the young ones comes home, like you know, like you said there, all the the kids comes over to the shack, sees the dogs, or if I got pups around the door, they're up with the pups, and you know, yeah, scatter person gets a little ride on the dogs when he comes home, and that does me good, you know, to see see the kids and dogs and stuff, but but you know, the, the, it's not going to be forever, like I said. Without you, uh, or Kendra, but like I mean, how hard is it? Really hard. I know that my dad won't be disappointed if I don't do this, but I can hear how sad he is just thinking about how he may not have this anymore. 
I'm sad thinking about how I may not have this anymore. What do you think the most important thing to know about keeping a team is? The most important thing? Hmm. The responsibility that comes with it, I guess. You are responsible for that dog, you know, he's there. He cannot survive without you, so you got to make sure he's fed. you got to make sure he's clean around the dog. In the summertime, make sure that he's got lots of uh, water and uh, clean water, you know. You're responsible for that dog's life, and, and you make sure that, uh, that he's got it as good as you can, you can do for him. I'm not sure that I can take that responsibility on right now. I've just started my dream job, the first full-time job I have ever had. I'm renting the place I live in. I don't own any land. I don't even own a snowmobile. And my disposable income is pretty limited. And it isn't just the money I would need for these dogs. It's the time, too. I just don't think I can do it. Just yet. But... I know all of that can change. And when the day comes that I can give those dogs their best possible life, I'll be ready. Reagan Burden. That doc was produced by Reagan with Allison Cook. It was made through the CBC Doc Mentorship Program. And now, what you've been waiting for. Photos, the photos of the Huskies. Head to our website. I can promise you fluffy tails and wet noses and an incredible balance of both majesty and cuteness. There, we also have a video from Reagan's deciding dog sled ride. That's all at cbc.ca slash docproject. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer with backup this week from Jonathan Orr. Our senior producer is Sherry OKK. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. Mush. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.